Before I begin today's episode, I want to talk about something else that happened recently. And I know with something new happening almost daily, it is challenging to keep up, but please bear with me. I want to talk about the extension of Muslim ban. So the Trump administration has extended the list of nations who face travel restrictions under the Muslim ban. Now citizens from Nigeria, one of the largest African countries and a U.S. ally with a population of 200 million, Tanzania, Myanmar, Sudan, Eritrea and Kyrgyzstan will face significant challenges in obtaining specific visas. Most of these countries have large Muslim populations. No surprises there. The restrictions will vary by country. Immigrant visas will be banned for citizens from Nigeria, Eritrea, Myanmar and Kyrgyzstan. Sudanese and Tanzanian immigrants will not be able to utilize the diversity visa lottery. It is crucial to note that the Rohingya Muslims are fleeing genocide from Myanmar. This ban will affect them as well. Now, the proclamation cites national security failings as a reason, and there is a whole list of criteria. But it is important to note that these failings are not exclusive to the banned countries. Some of the prerequisites outlined in the proclamation are not met by other countries as well. But it seems like this ban is a manifestation of Trump administration's promise of not letting black and brown people into the country. This kind of blatant racism was wrong when it took the form of the Chinese Exclusion Act and it is wrong now. Now, unfortunately, the public response this time has been muted. But here's what you can do. Call your elected officials, help amplify the voices of those who are directly impacted by it and do your research. Don't believe everything that you hear in the media or by politicians. And stand up for what's right, even if it does not directly impact you. And now to our today's guest. Shamim Sarif is a British novelist and filmmaker of South Asian and South African heritage. Her work often focuses on various aspects of identity, including gender, race and sexuality. It often draws upon her own personal experiences with cross-cultural, non-heterosexual love. She worked in her family's financial business for 10 years before becoming a full-time novelist and film director. She's married to producer Hanan Katan and they have two sons together. Sarif is openly lesbian and described her film I Can't Think Straight to be semi-autobiographical. With her partner Katan, she runs Enlightenment Productions based in London. Her next TV and film project is Polarized, a love story between two women from very different sides of post-Trump America. I am so excited to have her on my show. This is Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. I don't have the magic solution for how to deal with people who, you know, are so far removed from your from your perspective. My feeling is that I have the ability to tell stories and to create characters and 
my, I think my mission is really to use that, not in a didactic way, but to create entertainment and stories that draw people in. Before we dive into your amazing work and accomplishments, let's talk a little bit about your parents. They moved to England to escape the apartheid, right? Was the move worth it given all the Brexit and resurgent racism that we see in Britain now? It was worth it at the time as my parents left in the very early 60s. I think my mom, I think in around 1961 and my dad in 1963. So at that time, apartheid was really in full force. And I think for them, my father's family, for instance, was from Cape Town. And they had been moved three times from Stellenbosch to Pahl and then to Cape Town as different areas were designated as white areas. So I think you know, this was institutionalized racism on a on a whole different scale. So I think they did what they, you know, what they felt was the only thing to do at the time and just and just came away. So you are a novelist, you are a screenwriter, a director. There are so many things that you do. But more than that, you have been hailed as an ambassador for the LGBTQ community, especially the South Asian community. And people reach out to you and share their stories about their struggle with their sexual identity and relationship with family. And I I remember listening to one of your interviews with, I think it was Paula um, Diana, where you talk about initially there were so many cultural and legal boundaries that you had to face when you came out and you were living with your partner. Is there any story that you can share with us that really moved you that you hear from other people now? Oh my goodness, so many. <laughs> I was actually quite stunned because, you know, for me as a writer, writing I Can't Think Straight, The World Unseen, these were sort of based on my own or my family's experiences, but with the LGBTQ leads. And, and it, for me, I wanted to create stories in, in both in fiction and on film that I hadn't seen anywhere. I wasn't mm. seeing myself represented in that experience. And it wasn't just about it had to be the specifics of what I was going through, but just the, those feelings, you know, coming to terms with the fact that, that I was attracted to women, having to deal with that within a very you know, relatively restrictive cultural universe. So what I didn't realize is how much there was a need for that in the wider community. So yeah, there were, there were women who reached out and men, but specifically women from all over uh, the world, particularly the subcontinent and I do remember going to a TED conference in India uh, one time and having somebody contact me through my Facebook page where, you know, it, it sort of exploded and, and I'd set it up as this community. And she said, I'm, you know, I know you're there and I'm going to come and I'm going to see you. And, and I said, well, it's, you know, it's a closed off. It was on the emphasis campus. You know, they just they drive us in and out. There's security. And in the end, Hanan said, look, let's just meet her. And we went over to a nearby hotel. I think it was in Mysore. And she came over and she was a young Dalit girl from the Untouchables cast in India who had been sort of forced to into an arranged marriage. And I think she was 17 or something like that. But having seen I Can't Think Straight, it sort of gave her just that glimmer of possibility that even for a girl of her color, her background, her religious ex- expectation, she could break out of that. And she did. And in the end, she actually went on to found a whole set of LGBTQ 
support groups throughout India. She had to go through a lot of physical and mental and emotional abuse hmm. in order to, to get out of that situation. You know, I mean, what, what I dealt with here in London was, was tough, but it was nothing compared to what a lot of these women have to deal with in very, very repressive cultures. Talking about what you dealt with, how did you break through those cultural barriers? Now, your family is originally from India. I'm from Pakistan, so I, I can relate to South Asian culture being a little more traditional when it comes to sexual identity, sexual orientation. And how did you deal with that? And I was reading somewhere that your mom was more resistant versus your dad, which was an interesting perspective to hear. How was your experience and why do you think your mom was more resistant versus your dad? Well, you know, we, we are originally Indian, but originally a Muslim family. Right. And um, it was, I think, religiously based on the one hand uh, for my mom, who is more religious, I think, than my dad. But also, you know, it's often and not always, but often the women who are also the keepers of the tradition of the flame of, you know, uh, what people think in, in the communities. And I think a big difference that struck me between the Eastern cultures and Western cultures where I was growing up in, in London was that in the West, I think since the 60s and 70s, there's been this sort of move to understand that happiness comes from within. The most important thing is to be who you are and let the world take you as you are. That's kind mm. of the prevailing psychological uh, wisdom. And in the East, it's much more defined by who you are in a community, who you are within your family, how people from the outside view you. Exactly. You know, and there are positive elements to both of those things. But the, definitely one of the negative elements is when you are outside the status quo. Mm. And, for example, if you're gay, this is not going to be something that is readily acceptable. And so for my mother particularly, I think she was terrified about what people in the community would say, that she would somehow be judged, that it would reflect badly on her, on our family. And so it was a very difficult time for, for both me and for my wife, Hanan, who comes from an Arab family, Palestinian family, Christian Palestinians. So I couldn't even get that right and find a Muslim Arab. But... <laughs> But, uh, but it, you know what I, so what gave me the impetus to, to move away from that was honestly just, I think, falling in love and having to be true to that and having to have integrity and really ask myself a difficult question because it was easy enough for me to just not talk about it and keep it under wraps while it wasn't an issue because I wasn't somebody that went out very much. I was kind of introverted, typical writer. I wasn't hanging out, you know, in the gay scene in London at all. So it didn't matter. It didn't impinge on anybody's life. But when I met Hanan, I realized that this is not something I was willing to give up. Can you talk a little bit about how you met Hanan? Because I, I read somewhere how you met her and it's a very interesting story. And I thought I'll ask you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So how I met Hanan was weirdly trying to make a last ditch effort to keep my parents happy. So I had been introduced to a very lovely a guy who was from the same uh, community as me, a Smiley Muslim. He was looking to get married. And, you know, I was there as a potentially a suitable girl for him. And so we started to kind of, you know, go out just, you know, the way you do in these things, which at that time was really just in groups as friends, what have you get to know each other. But very early on, he said, you know, we'll go into town and, you know, we'll go for dinner and whatever. But we're going to stop and say hi to my friend Hanan. You're really going to love her. And he, <laughs> and he was right. 
so you know, we met that way, literally through this through this friend of ours. I mean, nothing happened uh, with this guy. You know, it, 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 I think it was never going to happen for me. I was just trying to make an effort, and he was very lovely about it. Later on, came to our civil partnership ceremonies. So, and is now happily married. But it was just an instant, I think, spark between us. But even then, it took a few years for anything to happen because. I think we both came from cultures where we felt we have to somehow get over this or we have to find another way or we're not trying hard enough to find the right guy. So I think that was there. But throughout it all, I think there was this growing and very deep attraction, you know, to each other. On, and I think a very on a very deep level of values and, and, and whatever, as well as just, you know, physically. So Yeah. And what I found interesting about your relationship with Hanan is that I watched a couple of your uh, YouTube interviews. You come across as very introverted. Even during the interview, I could see that. And Hanan is more like vocal. She's extroverted. She talks. She's more emphatic. But you were the one who encouraged Hanan to accept her sexuality. So basically, you encouraged her um, to come out rather than the other way around. But your personalities are completely different. Well, I think that was one of the things that surprised me when, when we were first together was that, you know, for me, she was so super cool, so together. You know, you, there was no situation you, you could throw her into that she wouldn't immediately, you know, make friends in or, or be great in. You know, whereas for me, uh, you know, even walking into a small room of people was, you know, tantamount to death. But it was weird that she had this block and I think it was just years and years and years of um being told by her by her mom or whatever that she needed to get married she was the eldest of six girls you know if she didn't get married then she would ruin everybody else's prospects mm -hmm. so I think in a way the pressures because she lived in Jordan for a long time and her parents were, were there really piled onto her mm -hmm. uh in a way maybe they didn't on me and I think she had never questioned that but I think that's one of the great things in our relationship is we're always, even to this day, questioning each other, pushing each other. And I think it's that, you know, you kind of end up growing together, which is exciting. Sometimes it's just tiring. You just don't want to have a personal growth day. I just say, oh, can you just let that slide? But you know what? We keep each other honest. And I think that's been one of the best things about being together. And, and you guys work together. You have a production company. It's called Enlightenment. And we will talk about that. But how is it to work with your spouse like if I think about working with my husband I will be miserable like I can't imagine working with him we'll probably end up killing each other if he did a lot of people say that to me I, there are two ways to look at it look we're very different people and you know if I if I want to focus on the fact that she's you know pushed me to do more than I want to do or this or that or the other you, you can let it drive you crazy but overall it's a joy because we're both passionate about now creating the stories the movies that we want to see, the TV that we want to see on screen. And I know I can't do that by myself. I can create the projects, create the characters, the universes that they live in. But I don't know how to get that out to, to the marketplace, to put together the structure films, all of that kind of thing, which is where Hanan comes in. So we, we both get to work on stuff that we love, but in very different ways. And I think that helps. And I think it's also been great that we've been able to work together on things as a couple and then bring our children in as a family because often when you're a filmmaker it's very difficult when you especially mm. when you're if you're a woman with with young children mm. you know you you have to make a choice if I'm going to go direct a movie I have to be away potentially for six months in another country but for us we didn't have to do that because we were able to take the boys with us we were doing this together as a family 
let's talk about your work. So I saw your film, I Can't Think Straight, like almost 10 years ago. And I at the time, I did not know who the director was. And then when I was doing research now, I realized you were the director and I was like, oh my God, this is this is amazing, right? That was a brilliant movie. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I haven't seen The World Unseen, but both these movies are loosely based on your family. I Can't Think Straight is semi-autobiographical, right? But then you made another movie, Despite the Falling Snow. How was the experience different from movies that are more focused on your personal personal life, your family, something that you can relate to versus something that is completely different. How did you navigate that space? For me, I wanted to, with Despite the Falling Snow, just expand my gaze a little bit. Hmm. I think, you know, I can't think straight. It was very personal and very meaningful to me at the time because of everything I was going through personally. And with The World Unseen, similarly, I think I, I always liked the, the juxtaposition of political backdrop where people are fighting a bigger system but also trying to you know, navigate their own views and, and challenge their own views. So for me, I looked at Despite the Falling Snow in, the, in that vein. It's a spy love story set in Russia in the mm. 1950s about two people who should be on very different sides of the political spectrum and are. One is a spy, one works for the government. But in fact, they find that they have a lot more in common than they realize. And then it's the question of how do they begin to see each other's perspectives. So it's the potential of love to open up that point of view, which I think is actually not that different from what I explored in I Can't Think Straight and The World Unseen. And it's, it is a theme that I really enjoy looking at in whatever I write. But I don't think anybody should be restricted to their own cultural backgrounds. You know, American writers are, are very rarely, nobody says, oh, well, you wrote a, mov- you know, a movie set in wherever, India, South Africa, Scandinavia, there, there tends to be this kind of application of this brush to uh, writers from a obviously culturally different background mm. who, that says that that's what you have to focus on. And I didn't want to be restricted by that entirely. And you mean you, as I mentioned in the beginning, are a novelist, you are a screenwriter and a film director. Is there one you enjoy doing more than the other? It's usually the one that I'm not doing at that moment. <laughs> no, that's not true. I, I, I'm really lucky. You know, I look at it as being able to tell stories in a lot of different forms. So what I really, I love about writing is that I am on my own. I'm literally creating this universe. And I think there's a certain respect for telling a story in a novelistic format from your editors or your publishers that is not there in, in a screenplay format, mm. which is understandable because a screenplay is a blueprint for a bigger thing that a director has to take. Mm. But in the film world, I understood that if I wanted to have that creative input to the end of the film, I would have to be the director of the film. And that was a really great challenge for me too. And I like challenging myself mm. to be able to really work with a huge team of people to be able to inspire them to, to see in the movie what I was seeing in it and what's come out of that, particularly with, you know, cast and, and the crew that's closest to me. We've had, you know, some amazing times on these films, you know, with Lisa Ray, Sheetal Sheth, Rebecca Ferguson, you know, we've come together to kind of do this. And it's been very rarely for a huge, you know, it's not like we were paying them $10 million to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of doing this because it was, they were scripts that really spoke to them on, on some yeah. level or another. And that's a really beautiful experience to be able to expand that creative vision to work with them, with Hanan. And you end up building ideally something better than what you had hoped when you first wrote the script. In terms of challenges, 
are there any challenges that you did not expect or foresee as a writer and a filmmaker when you started out? Oh, gosh, tons of challenges. Hmm. I was so clueless when we started out. <laughs> I really thought, <laughs> I thought, oh, well, you know, if you have a script that, you know, you, you sent out and had objectives, people read it and tell you that it's well-structured, great characters, we love the script, there's no problem. Why would you not get that made? And then, of course, you go around and you realize now 10, 12 years ago, we were making movies about women, women who were multicultural, oh. sometimes LGBT. This was not very exciting for, for Hollywood or for anybody at that time. You know, It was a very different landscape to how it is in the last year or two with the explosion of TV and, and with the Me Too movement. So it was, it, was a, it was a nightmare. I mean, we went around and people were like, well, could you make one of them white? Could you make one wow. of them a man? Could you de-gay that character? These were all things that we heard, you know, time and again in pitch rooms from sales agents, from distributors. So we found it really a challenge to bring together the financing for our movies in a traditional way, because the prevailing wisdom said, you don't, you can't take a movie about two Indian women uh, in South Africa and open it at the multiplex. Hmm. So it was really uh, an immense challenge, but that was where it was, it was really great that Hanan, I had persuaded Hanan to, to work in this production company with me. She was always an entrepreneur and a businesswoman, but it was really invaluable. It, wouldn't, it just wouldn't have happened without her tenacity and her creativity in thinking about how to put these projects together. How has the landscape changed over the last decade or so, especially for women of color? Because what I see as a woman of color, I feel like it's extremely difficult to cut through some noise and barriers and amplify our voices and tell our stories. It's always somebody else telling our stories. And you have been lucky in a way where you've been able to create your own narratives and tell your own stories. How has the landscape changed for women of color, especially in Hollywood? Is it easier now versus 10 years ago? Or do you think it's the same and a lot of work needs to be done? Both. <laughs> There's no way that you can say that things have not changed. That's That I feel is is absolutely for sure. And I think that's partly because of Harvey Weinstein. I think it's partly because of hashtag me too. I think it's partly because of the explosion of the streamers and cable mm. where there's space for stories about women that are fronted by women, women of color and minorities, which would not play at the multiplex, but people are realizing they can get a million viewers in their homes. But having said that, I think there is an awfully long way to go. I still, we are still finding that there are barriers to entry. We are now building a slate of projects around female characters, minority characters. It's been easier to get those meetings and to get in the door and to get things moving. But I think I will believe it as it continues to grow. I think it's still... You know, everything cannot happen overnight, even though I want it to and you want it to. Mm. So I do hope, but I think that momentum can easily slow down or stop. So I think it's very important that everybody keeps their eye on the ball and keeps pushing these uh, stories out there. Because I do believe that no matter what your color, race, sexuality, there is there is plenty of audience for, for stories. I watch a lot of stories about people that have nothing to do with me. They don't look mm. like me and they don't resemble me. But I can relate in some way or form to the theme or to the story that's being told. Exactly. Like, I grew up watching Hollywood movies. I grew up watching movies that I could relate to in some form or shape, but 
they did not represent my skin color or my identity and my religion, which was fine. So it should be fine the other way around as well. That's what I always felt. And it was surprising to me that then I can't think straight wasn't, you know, a, a big box office hit. Now, we just spoke to somebody at, at, a, at a production company recently who said, if you made that movie now, it would be everywhere. It would be yeah. like crazy regions. But at the time, it was still niched. So I think there's plenty of potential. We just have to keep plugging away at it. And I think it's important to do that. But it's, but it's exciting. You know, I think that there is potential and there are opportunities. Uh, and I think the more that women and, and women of color support each other and go out to see these movies Absolutely. And, watch on movies and watch these things or buy the books and don't pirate them, you know, things will improve. I found that with the Athena Protocol, which is the, the new book that I just uh, released with Collins in the States. It's a, it's a narrative with six women, very diverse characters, and one of the leads, the main lead, is an LGBTQ character. And it's a mainstream book. It's out there as a YA novel with Harper Teen. So, you know, it's, I think the, the landscape has shifted quite a bit. I was going to ask you about the Athena Protocol. It's it's more like um, James Bondish, right? It's like um, the idea is to have that kind of a character, but a female character. Yes, I didn't want that to be just the only difference, that it's like, okay, here's a woman with a gun and who can fight mm. and kick her way out of trouble. The thematics behind the Athena Protocol was about my, because it I've always been interested in the issues that face women and girls around the world, particularly in countries where women don't have equal rights yet in law. So, for example, human trafficking is a big issue all over the world. And that's something that governments just don't have the budgets or the time to deal with. So it tends to become this, this monster. So I, the idea with the Athena Protocol is what if you had a group of successful women who decided to take on those particular issues? education for girls or women or human trafficking that governments just never get around to doing because they're not important enough for them. Hmm. So it was under this that they decided to start this agency called Athena using three young female agents and to work specifically for women and girls around the world who are disenfranchised. So it was kind of an interesting way to explore that and to explore the moral boundaries that get crossed when you start to fight against people like that, because, you know, you end up having to shoot, having to kill, having to decide what's right and wrong on the ground. Hmm. There's another project that I wanted to talk to you about. I think it's your next TV and film project, both, is Polarized, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's yeah. a love story between two women from different sides of post-Trump America. How did mm-hmm. you come up with that concept, and why do you think it's important in today's climate? Well, it was really my reaction to Trump being elected, and... And I think I was just so horrified by the division that I could see and that I still feel and we're all feeling in Europe and America today. And now, you know, in India and Pakistan, it's just it, it feels like there's a subtle creep of fascism in, in people's narratives. And I think social media, the way we look at our Twitter feeds both ways, it enhances that because you, you're able to curate the news to really so you only listen to the side that you want to listen to. And we're both finding the other side to not just to listen to. So everybody's getting more and more polarized. So I thought it was interesting. Like, how could you possibly break that in such a political climate? And in present day America, where in a small town, two people can have completely different experiences of that town, depending on their race, their religion, where they hang out, the economics of where they live. Do they live in the suburbs or are they in 
in the rundown downtown area. And so I came up with the story of two women. One is from a Palestinian family who run urban farms, you know, which grow food vertically with a tiny percentage of the water and, and the resources of traditional farms. And one is the daughter of a traditional American farming family who have lost everything. Mm. And one has to go and work for the other. And the subtle racism that bubbles up there actually causes the, uh, the white uh, girl to be fired. And so it starts with quite a, quite a lot of drama. But eventually these two connect in ways they would never have expected. And they fall in love with each other. And the fact that in 2020, this could cause this much consternation in, in a small town in North America was very intriguing to me. Mm. Um, and it told me that that was still the story that needed to be told. So, But Shami, on a personal level, I struggle with this question a lot. And I've thought about it so many times, especially since Trump was elected. Um, how do we reach across the aisle? How do we connect with people who are different in their political affiliation? But the problem runs deeper. It's not just political differences that we are talking about, right? Whether you mm-hmm. see it in policy framework or you see it in terms of the rhetoric um, that we hear, it's basically an active erasure of people from other races or cultures, ethnic backgrounds, religious and sexual identities? No, absolutely. It, there's a huge cultural issue here. And and I think it's the first time living in England that I felt racism, not specifically towards me, because, you know, we all end up constructing our lives in a way that we don't have to deal with these things, mm. because otherwise, you know, your energy gets dissipated. But I feel it in the country. I feel it in the Brexit vote. But people, and with Trump, people, I think, are feeling emboldened to express things that they were previously felt they ought to be ashamed about. I, that, that's my take on it. Mm. And obviously that festering was there. But it is very difficult to reach out to people like that. I found it hard with my parents who voted for Brexit because they didn't want any more immigration, if you can believe it. <laughs> Although I'm not surprised. I'm not. I think it's also this notion of pitting one group of immigrants against the other. That's been, I think, also a common thread that you see in the U.S. and probably in Britain as well. I've seen that with my friends who think that, oh, other immigrants should not come or immigrants should only be allowed if they meet certain prerequisites, which to me is just crazy and and extremely bigoted. No, I mean, you know, I don't have the magic solution for how to deal with people who, you know, are so far removed from your from your perspective. My feeling is that I have the ability to tell stories and to create characters. And my I think my mission is really to use that, not in a didactic way, but to create entertainment and stories that draw people in that maybe create empathy for characters that you wouldn't expect to have empathy with because the best TV shows and and books and movies do that for us. Right. You know, we'll, we'll learn to have empathy with people that we never thought we could imagine uh, liking or caring about. And so I think storytelling and especially visual storytelling is an extremely powerful way to break down this barrier that people have in their minds about the other, because I think a lot of it is fear. It's a lot of fear of immigrants, fear of being of gay people, fear of mm. something that in my mind I cannot relate to and therefore maybe 
something threatening to me. And I think when you begin to know people who are of color, are gay, are women, and actually they don't represent all of these scary things, I think that's where the shift of mind comes. Now, can you ask people to watch your movies and books? No, not necessarily. But for me, that's a big uh, motivator. And, and, and one way I think that we can start to break down some of these walls because, you know, walls will never, ever get us anything that we want. And that there has to be a shift in the way we look at immigration, the way we look at each other as humans, nationhood, you know, all of this the xenophobic kind of boundary drawing that, that has gone on in the past is not, for me, uh, any anything sustainable in the way forward. Shamim, let's talk a little bit about what you just mentioned in terms of your parents not wanting to have more immigrants. And this is an interesting perspective. As I said, I've seen my friends and immigrants who've settled here for years have a similar perspective. Do you have a take on that? Why do you think they think that way, especially when people like them have benefited from immigration over the years. Is there a reason? Do you, do you make any sense of why that could be the case? I think it, from, from my perspective, what they're going through is some kind of scarcity mentality so that their feeling is that there's one pie or one mm-hmm. cake and that uh, there's a finite number of slices to that cake. And so they, they, they got their slice, but you know it, this cannot go on forever. And I think it's a common thing for us, for human beings. You know, sometimes we'll look at things and go, oh, you know, why did she get that job? And, you know, I, I could have done that. And it, there are, there's not a finite number of jobs. There's not a finite number of uh, ways to grow food. There are all sorts of possibilities for expansion in the world as, as it exists now. But I think if you have that mentality of there is not quite enough for everybody to go around, it creates a fear of shortage. And that, for me, is what plays into you know what, there are not jobs enough jobs in America for the immigrants. There are not jobs enough in Europe or whatever the case may be. And I, for me, that's, I think, where that seems to stem from. Mm. And I, it might be an idea for people to have, and I know it sounds a little airy-fairy, but we know we've done it. We didn't think we could feed a billion people on Earth or two billion or five billion. Mm. But there are possibilities, but you, people have to open their minds to them. And I think that sense of kindness and compassion, I know if we... You know, if England was invaded tomorrow by a, uh, Assad or somebody similar, uh, wouldn't we be hoping for somebody to open their doors to us? Of exactly. course we would. But as long as it's not happening to us, it's easy to look the other way rather than think about how can we figure this out. It's not an easy problem, but there have to be solutions. You're also an accomplished speaker and you've done TED events, right? What's one yes. message you want to share with people who are listening today? I think for me, it's a sense of abundance that there is, that there's always an alternative way to a way that closes a door. And I think for me, the other thing is the power of art and storytelling. I think I see it more and more as as scientific and as physics related as the world gets, which is so, it's also exciting and creative. I think the power of people, of stories to change people's minds and to alter perspectives is, is always there and, and ever-growing. And, and I think our capacity as humans to enjoy stories and to use them as kind of um, 
an instruction manual for how to get through what all the things that we go through in life, the emotional highs and lows, the ups, the downs, the big decisions. Mm. I think we can turn storytelling for that. So there's immense power in using that to, um, to influence our lives. Are you scared of anything? You know, only um, anything happening to my spouse or my kids mm. and, and climate change. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And my response to that sounds counterintuitive, but it's actually to try not to think about it because I found that when I was focusing on these things, you kind of induce yourself into a state of panic that that cuts off your mind from any kind of creative ability or creative solutions. So it's not closing my eyes to the fact that it's there. It's just saying, okay, let's not make it cripple you uh, in, in what you're able to, to focus on. But yeah, I mean, I think you can lie lie there at night and freak out about a million different things. And I cannot say that I have never had sleepless nights in, in my time. And some of that was the choice to be a storyteller, mm. the choice to be in the independent film world and then think, Christ, how are we going to get our you know kids through school and, and, you know, pay the bills next month? Everybody has those issues. But I think fundamentally, you just have to focus on doing with your life the best that you think you can do. Make the most of what you've got to give. And then... Um, really hope that we can elect people who, who help <laughs> yeah we're, we're all hoping to do that and you explore so many dimensions of your own identity whether it's being a woman being a woman of color being part of lgbtq community what have you learned about yourself through this process of self-discovery and um, self-evolution in a way? I think, um, you know, it took me a long time to mature. I was, I lived at home, you know, through to my early 20s. I never rocked the boat with my family, but I lived a very rich interior life in my head and with, with stories. But when I was forced to grow up, and I not physically, but mentally and emotionally was having to make a decision to step away from my family in order to be with Hanan and then mm. for us to have our own family. And I think that was one of the defining eras of my life because it really made me have to evaluate the world that I'd come from, what were the values that I wanted to keep, what didn't work for me, and to forge our own set of values and our own family. And I think there's nothing that makes you grow up faster than that. And so I think that for me was the biggest lesson that I learned that was that I could be completely strong within myself. I could figure things out and I could build a life that wasn't predicated on having a, a structure or a framework that was designated for me by my culture or by my religion or by my family. Shamim, what are some of the values that you have kept of your culture? Because you just mentioned that there are some values you have kept and others you've decided to just do away with. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there are little elements where Hanan and I look at each other and we go, we're, you know, we're such Asian parents because we, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, never, we never encourage our kids to be out, you know, till 4 a.m. partying every night or, you know, uh, we want them to you know, work hard at school and get good grades and all of these kinds of things. So I think, but it's not, I think the difference is it's not just because we want to tell everybody that they got straight A's. It's because we decided, you know, we can see that they're, for example, with our, our sons who are now 21 and 17, we could see there was, they were bright boys. They're very scientific, very techie. Mm. And it would be a shame for them not to make the most of it. So we encourage them to really focus on their studies. They go out, but it's kind of, you know, 
dinner and movies and stuff like that more than wild crazy nights partying as far as I know (laughs) and you know I think so there are elements where you know there are good things the foods we've kept from both sides of our you know the the Palestinian and the Indian culture music uh you know those are the positive things I think but the restrictions as in who they can be friends with who they should go out with what they look for in a partner we like those values to be based on I don't like saying that we're not judgmental because I think we are. And I think we would judge people. We try to put judge people on whether they are, you know, drug addicts, whether they have a work ethic, whether they're passionate about what they do, not on race, color, religion, or anything else that's kind of inherent, if you like. Would you encourage your kids to be part of your production company and follow the same path as Hanan and you? Are they interested? Would you encourage them to do that? No, God, they have to become like a doctor or dentist, like good Indian boys. No. <laughs> oh my God, you sound so much like my husband. He and I have these conversations. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I would never, I would never encourage them to do. I, I just want encourage them to do what they enjoy, because I also think uh, one of the other things I've learned over the years is when you pursue what you enjoy, you get better at it. Exactly. And for me, once you, I'm nowhere near that, but I've always been now in the last few years really working towards mastery in my writing and my screenwriting. And then I hope in future in my directing even more so. And I think that's the key. I think if they're doing what they love, they're going to be good at it. And if they're good at it, they're likely to make money at it and be happy. As it happens, they're both great on programming and computers. And I think they will go into some kind of technology but I just want them to really be happy doing what they do every day because that's that's the stuff of your life and then it's over and you, you want to spend it doing something that's meaningful to you. And what kind of relationship do you have with your parents now versus a few years back? You know, it's it's uh, it's fine. It's it's not uh, that we don't speak to each other, but it's I think it's fairly distant and I think that's just, you know, who they are and, and who I am. I think there's, you know, they're, they do spend a lot of time out of the country and, you know, we don't, we see each other minimally, I would say. And is there a particular Indian dish that you really like? Oh my gosh, so many. (laughs) (laughs) Do you cook? I do. I, I'm not that, I'm, I cook Indian, but not as much as I should. And then says, feels like she got shortchanged somewhere along the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she's very, she's terribly racist. She thinks because she, she should have married somebody who can cook dal and be tech support. <laughs> So, so uh, but I would say, I would say uh, two things I love are lamb biryani. Oh, wow. Even yeah. Trying not to eat red meat so much and dal, dal makhni particularly. Because there, unfortunately, there's like a kilo of cream and God knows what in that. So I eat it very sparingly. But when we went to India recently over Christmas with the boys to kind of show them, as they've never been, I think I kind of binged out on both of those. What is one thing that you find difficult about Indian cooking? And I, I have my theories on it, but I want to hear your perspective. I think it's, uh, I find it so intuitive, you know, because it's not like there are no recipes that can yeah. handed down. There's like one and a half teaspoons of this and, you know, what is that? It's just like you have to kind of feel it, right? So right. I think it depends what mood you're in as to how well your your dish comes out, I find. It's interesting because my husband, every time he ventures into cooking, he'll ask me about specific measurements. He'll be, how many teaspoons of salt? And I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, you cook all the time. How do you not know? And I'm like, as you said, it's intuitive. You don't really know how much salt and pepper you have to put in a particular dish. It's like whatever you're feeling at the time. 
Correct, exactly. But you know, that's what makes it such an exciting journey because you never quite know <laughs> what it'll turn out to be. You're absolutely right. Um, you can probably it, know it's going to be okay, but do you know if it's going to be sublime that day? It's kind of like you, there's everything to play for every time. So it's wonderful. So, Shamim, in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a phrase, how would you do that? America today or in general? America today, I, I think that's more relevant um, to what probably listeners would like to hear as well. Polarized. Mm. <laughs> I think that would be it. And it's such a shame. You know, I grew up on movies and, and literally with such a romantic conception of America. And this, it, America to me when I was growing up meant infinite possibility. It meant entrepreneurship. It meant endless space. There, there's just an expansiveness about the meaning of that word to me. And I think it's all of that is still there, I hope. But I think there's so much that has been closed down about it. And when you compare it to England, do you see any similarities, differences in where both countries are in terms of how divisive or how polarized they are? I feel, unfortunately, that England is much more uh, divided now than, than it perhaps I would have said a few years before before the Brexit vote happened. So I feel that unfortunately England is moving and Great Britain is moving closer to America in those feelings. I still feel that there is a European sensibility here in the sense that there's people talk about things more. There's, I think, I feel the general population is perhaps a little bit more aware of the nuances of the political side of the spectrum than maybe in certain parts of the States and in the, in the heartland of America, but that might be just reductive. Mm. But, um, but generally I feel there's, there's plenty of room for hope to come back into the equation for expansiveness, for us to try to work together uh, across race and, and things that are being put up as boundaries right now. Thank you so much, Shamim. This was wonderful. Is there a website where people can go and find out about your future projects, your books, your movies? I've seen two and I loved them. And I'm so looking forward to seeing your project polarized because I think it, it will be so emblematic of what, what is going on right now. So is there a website they can go on? Yes, absolutely. And it's uh, my name, basically, shamimsarif.com, S-H-A-M-I-M-S-A-R-I-F. And that is also me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And that is me on there. So if people want to follow me, they can find out more about what's going on. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for taking the time out to listen, give us feedback. And if you like what you hear, please share. We have a GoFundMe. Details are on website and social media and also in the description. Until next time, when we bring another inspiring story. And in the meantime, stay connected. 